This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt is a social psychologist at Stanford University and the author of Biased, which has become one of my favorite and most turned to books. In its pages, she offers a thorough and thoughtful examination of all the ways that our biases show up in the world, in education, in medical outcomes, in our offices, and in our personal relationships. As an academic, she is quick to find a study, and many of the studies that she cites are fascinating. Today, Dr. Eberhardt and I have a conversation about becoming aware of our own biases and then how to override them. As we continue to critically examine the racial disparities in our culture, we have to remember that the work is ongoing. At various points in history, we thought we were there, that we had made it. But our tendency to backslide is real and pronounced. In our conversation, she explains what she thinks we must require of ourselves and each other to systematically move forward in an ongoing way. Sometimes people get stuck on what we do first. You know, they, they, they can check the box that they've done that. And, then, and sometimes they feel even less inclined to do the harder things that they need to do to deal with these issues. Let's get to my chat with Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. Well, it is an honor to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time. We are finally here together. Just took a minute, but I'm sure you've been wildly busy. How are you? I'm doing okay. I have been incredibly busy, actually, just given everything that's going on in the world today. So, I'm, you know, it, it's good to be out there and just, you know, in, in a position to try to make a difference, at least. Yeah, I guess you're not getting a summer break, though. No, but where so is much- there to go? <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> Phil and I were just talking about that. And I, I asked him if he was taking a vacation. And he's like, to where? And with whom? So <laughs> yeah, I guess we're just, we're all going to just get through it. But yeah. your book is, and I know that it's sort of a snapshot of your life's work to date, and that that work continues. But I took 11 pages of notes and quote your book all the time because it it just at every single you have such amazing research that you've I know you've done much of it yourself and that other research that you've aggregated and talk about but it is just sort of a force for anyone who wants to understand bias. I'd love for you first, I guess, to tell the story about sort of your childhood and how and when you moved when you were 12 and what that was like for you suddenly being in a sea of white faces. Because I think as a white person, we always had this idea. You talk about like the cringeworthy expression, they all look alike and how that has long been considered the province of the bigot. But it's actually a function of biology and exposure. So can you sort of talk about fusiform face area and the science around how that comes to be? Sure. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I grew up, you know, in a neighborhood that was entirely black. You know, my school was, you know, everyone, the the students, the teachers were black. Anybody that I had any meaningful contact with was African-American. And so when my parents announced when I was 12 years old that we were going to move to this suburb called Beechwood, I was pretty nervous about it. I didn't know much about that suburb, but I did know that no black people lived there, <laughs> basically. So I was trying to just re- pretty nervous, right? So just didn't know how it was going to work out. I wasn't sure if I would be able to make friends and whatnot. And then I get there and, you know, everybody's like really nice. They're very welcoming, but I still had problems making friends. And that was because I could not tell their faces apart. I just had no idea. Like I would talk to, you know, you know, one girl, you know, one moment. And then, you know, the next day she would say hi and I couldn't figure out who she was and if she was the one that I talked to the day before and so forth. So you can imagine really hard to make friends if you can't actually tell people's faces apart. (laughs) Anyway, I was pretty nervous about all of this and sort of what was going on and I didn't understand it. And, you know, how could I not just have you know, the the ability to do this most basic thing. And I realized later that there's something in science that we've known about for many decades called the other race effect. And it's basically that people are much better at recognizing faces of their own race than they are at recognizing faces of other races. And so that's what I was experiencing here. So my brain had not had much practice, right, at recognizing uh, white faces. And so after I was in that environment for a while and, you know, my brain had exposure, right, to faces of other races, I could, you know, learn how to make these fine-grained distinctions among them. So, yeah. so that actually is something that I did study, you know, at Stanford, you know, as a professor, you know, many, many years later. Uh, so you were alluding to that with this neuroimaging study we did. It was the first neuroimaging studies uh, study looking at this other race effect and, and sort of looking at how it shows up in the brain. And so what we did is we placed people in, a, in an imaging scanner and we showed them faces while they were in the scanner and we looked at what areas of the brain got activated with exposure to those faces 
And there's something in the brain called the fusiform face area. It's an area that's highly sort of implicated in face processing and sort of face recognition. And we noticed that for both white and black study participants, when we showed people faces of their own race, you got much more, you know, significantly more activation in this fusiform face area than you did if we showed them faces of another race. So that's mm. what we found. And so years later, you know, after my 12 year old experience, I <laughs> got some answers. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's it's wild. I was just looking at Ibram Kendi's new baby book, Anti-Racist Baby, and, and some of the marketing supporting it. And he was, you know, explaining same thing at six months, babies can tell the difference. And so then when we sort of layer on our own extreme anxiety and shame about race and tell parents, you know, when we when we shame that conversation from even happening of, yes, that person's Asian American and yes, that person's black and we're we're different. And this is all true and valid when we shame that conversation the way that I was raised. I think many of us were raised. Right. Like you would never say, oh, the black woman in the purple shirt. You'd say the woman in the purple shirt amongst maybe a sea of women in purple shirts. Right. That we, you know, by not even by by not acknowledging it, we make it something that's shameful to talk about, where it's just part of our biology. Right. Of course, we understand difference. And that's our whole right. world is built on sorting and processing and hopefully not in negative ways. But we have to sort information to make sense of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think somewhere along the line, people got the message that to be on the right side of things and to not be biased, that you should be colorblind, right? Because yeah. if you're colorblind, you can't see race. And so how could you possibly be biased? But as it turns out, the problem is, is that when you push people to be colorblind, not only are you sort of pushing them to not see color, you're pushing them to not see the harm that comes from color. So you're blinding mm-hmm. them actually to the inequality that is present out in the world. And then you're not equipping them to be able to talk about that inequality at all. And, you know, there's research showing that by the time you know, children are, are 10 years old, they already get the message from adults that it's it's not good to talk about race. It's not polite to notice race, as you were saying. And so we don't have practice at talking to one another, especially across race lines about race. And so when you don't have that practice and then issues come up, you feel even more nervous, right, about having the discussion because you might worry you're going to say the wrong word or you're going to be sort of taken out of context or whatever. And so then you just avoid the discussions altogether. And sometimes you avoid the people, you know, altogether. Mm -hmm. So it really this colorblindness, this notion of, of this, uh, that's the way to approach this is really not the, the thing to do. Yeah, no, it's dangerous. I mean, I sent this section of the book to all of the moms at the school in, in my son, my older son's class, because everyone immediately, you know, after George, George Floyd was like, are you saying anything? Are you doing anything? My oldest is seven. And I was like, yes, like we have to talk about this all the time. And I sent everyone that section of your book where you talk about that study by Evan Applebaum and Nalini Embody. I hope I said that their, their names correctly, but how you showed a videotape message promoting racial equality. And then mm-hmm. for half, you said you you told them you gave them the co- I know you didn't do the study, but they gave the colorblind message. And then for the other half, they gave the we're all different and let's value that and talk about it. 
And the ones who got the colorblind message, when they then showed them or told them stories about like black children being, I think it was intentionally tripped while playing soccer. That's right. Yeah, only 50% of those in the colorblind mindset identified the action as discriminatory. And the diversity-minded group, nearly 80% saw discrimination as a factor. Yeah. That's right. I mean, so that's a great example, right, of how when you're teaching kids to be colorblind, they don't see their discrimination, you know, that, that comes from color. And the other thing about that study that was really interesting is that, you know, when they, they had these kids, these were fourth and fifth graders, they had them retell what happened, you know, to a teacher. And so that teacher listened and, and, and it turns out that the children who told that story, who were in a colorblind condition, told it in such a way that the, the teacher felt it was less necessary to get involved. They felt like it was less of a problem and that they didn't need to intervene at all. So not only, mm. you know, you know, are you not seeing the discrimination, but, you know, you're now setting up a world where even the adults in this situation can't even understand the, the gravity of the situation. So that's a so, yeah, I, I love that study because there were so many layers to it and it was so sort of counterintuitive, you know, for, for, for many people. And so, yeah, it, yeah, it's a great example. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was staggering. And just to keep talking about, you know, kids and what's happening in our education system. This was perhaps, I think, one of the most disheartening sections of the book. But when you talk about, for example, and I know right now there's just a, a and it probably is perpetually awash. And now we're just really noticing it, but just a wave of anti-Semitism. And then you you offer the statistic that This was a survey by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany that 22% of young Americans who came of age in the 21st century said they never had heard of the Holocaust. And two-thirds of them failed to identify Auschwitz as a Nazi death camp. And then you talk about how slavery has been sort of sanitized or wiped from many, even textbooks circulating as recently as 2015. So we're just not teaching it. And is it because we just, we can't own it? Like, what, what do you think is happening? And then is it our job as parents then to make sure that our kids are getting accurate U.S. history and world history? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, we all should be active here, right? So I think we all want to take some responsibility for making sure that our children understand these issues and then also understand what's at stake. And, yeah. you know, I feel like with teachers, you know, I know some of them, they did a, a, a survey also asking, well, why aren't you teaching it? You know, if, if you're not teaching slavery, for example, and, you know, a number of them just felt like, well, we don't know how to teach it. We don't know how to teach it in a way where if they were in a class, a, a sort of mixed race class, for example, they didn't want to teach it in a way where they made the black kids feel bad. Sometimes right. they pointed to the textbooks not doing a good job in, in, in teaching it. So there, there are all these issues there. And again, this kind of leads back to our prior discussion around colorblindness too. Like, So if, if you grow up, you're, you're, you're a teacher now, right? But you've grown up in a world, in an environment where you're talking not to notice race or think about race or comment on race even. And then you're in a classroom and you're supposed to talk about slavery. How do you do that comfortably? Yeah. And and some of them feel like, okay, we can't do that comfortably. We can't do it adequately. And so you get sort of, you know, children who don't actually even, you know, they're not educated about it as they should be. 
Yeah. I mean, and to that point, here's another staggering statistic. Only 8% of high school seniors, this is according to a, a Southern Poverty Law Center survey of high school seniors in social studies. Okay. And social studies teachers. So only 8% of high school seniors could identify slavery, 8% could identify slavery as the primary reason the South seceded from the Union. Nearly half of the students said it was to protest taxes on imported goods. Wow. That's amazing, huh? <laughs> it is staggering. Staggering. It is. it is. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously what we're seeing now is what our discomfort has caused us, even if our discomfort is well-intentioned and disguised as, well, it happened and let's move on, right? Because the reckoning of discomfort that needs to be faced now is quite staggering. And I think, understandably, I've heard this certainly from younger generations, like there's a deep sense of betrayal. I even feel some betrayal and I'm 40 of like, how did I not know all of this? Yes. You know? So it feels like we need a massive rehaul of the curriculums of this country. And I know like Ibram, you know, wrote a YA version of Stamped, for example, and hopefully teachers just lean more on outside texts in order to tell a more comprehensive story. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue everywhere, though. It's not just education, but I mean, we mm-hmm. don't like to talk about, you know, racial disparities in healthcare. We don't like to talk about racial disparities in the criminal justice system. You know, yeah. we're, we're not talking about racial disparities in the workplace. So it's not something that's specific to teachers. I mean, I, I feel that the country as a whole, we need to understand that we can't just wish this away. You know, we can't yeah. just turn a blind eye and, and, and then feel as though everything is okay. As we saw with the more recent protests, it's not. We are a nation where there's unrest, right, for, for a reason now. And I think yeah. that I'm hoping that this moment will actually lead to more of a reckoning where people are willing to confront these issues. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Let's get to all of those issues. Let's talk about incarceration next. And clearly, I think people are now pretty well versed in the idea of bailout funds and what's happening and the mass and like the essentially the new Jim Crow of what's happening in jails. This is another 
staggering statistic from you. It's from the sociology professor Bruce Western, his research. But black men born in the late 1940s who dropped out of high school had a 17% chance of going to prison by the time they were in their 30s, compared with a 4% chance for white male dropouts. And then for you write, however, for black men of my generation, the odds are crushingly worse. Nearly 60% of black male dropouts born in the late 1960s wound up in prison compared with 11% of similarly situated whites. That is horrible. And then the implications, obviously, of that on children, on women, and on, of course, these men and what that does what that does socially is just staggering. Yeah, and and it, and what it does for whole entire communities, right? Yep. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know, I I think that's something that that's another one of those things that people I, I don't feel are that aware of, like the cost of mass incarceration on Black families and Black communities. You know, there's even research looking at the mental health costs uh, on this. And so this work by public health researchers, David Williams and, and others, where they've looked at these officer-involved shootings, and they looked at those police killings where there was a Black man involved who was unarmed. Mm-hmm. And they found that killing affected the mental health of Black people across the entire state where it happened, right? But it only affected the mental health of African-Americans if the person was unarmed. So there wasn't the same effect on the mental health of Black people if the person was armed. And so the the fact that it's unarmed, the researchers are thinking, well, maybe this is due to the fact that you're feeling less protected, where you feel more stressed about your own family and your own community, that this could happen to you, where you feel like you you have systems uh, built up that are not there to protect you, but that people can be killed with impunity and so forth. And so... Yeah, it was just, I thought that was, the fact was really interesting because, you know, you didn't see anything like that for white Americans. So whether the person killed was armed or unarmed or whether they were black or white, there was just no effect on their well-being in terms of their anxiety or depression or or, or, or anything. So so it just really um, underscores, yeah, just the, yeah. Um, the weight <laughs> that these things carry, that there is a cost and, you know, there is a, a sort of unequal burden in terms of who bears the cost. Yeah, no, of course. I wouldn't think twice about sending my young boys to our neighborhood park with like a water gun, right? And I know for friend, my friends who have black children that that's a consideration that they would think about, that they wouldn't be comfortable with that even at all for a minute. These are deep, deep traumas that we just keep restroking again and again and again. And then I think you get into these conversations with people. And I wish that this were marketed differently, just because I feel like it's so it sounds so scary to people. But when you talk about things like defund the police, and then you explain what that actually means, it's hard not to win support, even for people who are immediately sort of like, what do you mean, like no police? But when you explain sort of the how that funding needs to be reallocated upstream, et cetera, and how we don't need armed cops responding to mental illness and homelessness and really tr- routine traffic stops, people, st- I think, start to understand that and get excited about a different sort of law enforcement. 
Yeah, I think all over the country, people are talking about sort of reimagining public safety. And let me say too, just on the mental illness front, there are programs out there already that do this, that shift some of the responsibility in, in answering calls to you know, people who are having mental health episodes to people who are experts in that area, licensed clinicians, right? And so there yeah. are programs, for example, in Los Angeles, where they have such a program where you have a licensed clinician and you know an officer will be on the beat together. They will you know be together, and then if, when a fifty-one fifty comes in, so that's a call where someone's in distress. There's a mental health episode. They will go together, and the mental health professional will take the lead. Right. Mm. And the cop is there, but the cop is there for, for backup mostly and, and is, is also not in uniform. So it's like a you know plain clothes person because that just the uniform could kind of activate things. Right. right? It could yeah. escalate things. And so they're, they're finding when the when the expert, when the clinician is out front and dealing with the situation, it tends to be less likely to escalate. You don't get the same level, like the use of force that you would get before they had this program in place. You don't have people being handcuffed. You don't have people being arrested and kind of thrown into the system. And so so we know already this works. I mean, we don't have to even sort of think about what would it be like, right, if we had this other kind of way of responding to such situations because they exist. And we should think about you know, how do we replicate that in more places, and, and yeah. I don't think it has been replicated in very many places. So, so that's, I mean, we could start with what we already know is working. Right. No, absolutely. And what we know, I thought that the studies that you talked about, too, in the context of like where we, what can be trained and what can't be trained was also really fascinating in the context of police officers and when they choose to shoot or not. And how I don't remember exactly what the study, what the what the researchers, which study it was, but essentially in that sample of police officers, they were they were faster to shoot blacks with guns and white with guns, but there was no difference. They were no more likely to shoot a black person with no gun than they were to mistakenly shoot a white person with no gun, if I'm getting that correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this was a study that was conducted by Josh Carell and colleagues. He's a social psychologist. And what they did with this study is it was a shoot, don't shoot study, right? And it was a computer simulation. And so they're sitting in front of the computer. They're seeing people flash on the computer screen and either they're holding guns or they're holding harmless objects. And you have to make a decision. You're forced to respond really quickly to shoot or not to shoot. And you're right. So, uh, you know, officers were faster, you know, at making a decision. They also showed there was a, a race difference or bias, if you will. So they were faster to shoot a black person with a gun than a white person with a gun. But the researchers found that they were no more likely to shoot a black person without a gun than a white person without a gun, basically. they So the error rate was similar across whether you were black or white. And so they looked into this to try to understand, like, you know, what was going on here, what was driving it. And they found that when officers had this more interactive use of force training, that was seemed to be what was driving it. So if you had rookie cops, they were showing a bias in the error rates where they were 
faster, they were more likely to mistakenly shoot a black person with no gun than they were to mistakenly shoot a white person with no gun. But as they get got more of this training, the training over was was overriding that. So basically the training was overriding this association that they had with blackness, with crime. And so they were responding on the basis of the training. So it's almost like you, you learn a new action to <laughs> resort to instead of following sort of a bias that was learned over time, like you, you could replace that bias bias actually with the training that you've had. And for me, that was really um, encouraging, right? Because it shows us that bias, you know, this is something that's malleable. It's not like we're sort of doomed to have bias infect our decision-making and our actions, that there are actually steps that we can take to curb it. And do you think it's that the first step in addressing it is just acknowledging that we universally have bias? period, end of story, just part of how we function as humans, confirmation bias, just stereotyping in general, sorting, et cetera. And that the first, the way to train around it is just to step into it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes sense if you're saying that's the first step, but it can't be the only step. <laughs> no, no, no. I right? just mean like it, it's a, it's an essential step to even to own it before we can address it. And that too often we've wanted to be like, oh, no, 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 like no bias. Right, right, right. right. And I guess what I was reacting to is because sometimes I hear this from people, they'll say, and and, and not sometimes, but frequently actually, that, oh, well, we all have bias. And and if we all have bias, and this is just how our brains work, that that means that there's nothing we can do about it. So, So they take that information as almost like, so I don't have to feel responsible for it. I know that's not what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally hear you. Yeah. But I still, I still feel like people want to assume that they, that they're totally conscious and that they can actively override it. And it's, I think that you're missing the first step and saying, of course I have bias. So I need to examine it. I need to like look at my privilege and whatever that might, might be, whether it's being able-bodied or, you know, the whole list of privileges. I feel like we haven't even wanted to acknowledge sort of where we stand before stepping into the work. That's true. Which, yeah. And as you, you know, bias is in the context of work. Let's talk about race, too, as well as and you talk about it as being activated against women as well. And then obviously you have intersectionality and you have black women, but that women are typically I mean, obviously, we all know about the wage disparity, but that women are using in the same way that black and Asian students try to use different names so as to appear you write less ethnic and less threatening. Women are using gender gender neutral names on their resumes as well, right? Because right. being too smart can be a turnoff. Right. There was a, a study that was conducted by a, a sociologist looking at math majors and, you know, looking at these are people who are seeking jobs, who are finishing, they're college graduates, basically. And they found that men were more likely to get these positions than women were. And I think they were three times more likely to get the position than women were when math was their major, when they were sort of going after these jobs. And when they, I I believe they did follow up interviews with these potential employers and all of that. And 
And the finding was that they just thought smart women were not, that they were not going to fit in, you know, as well, that they, there were going to be all these problems that would come with that. And so you think that it's, you know, you want, you know, things to be based on these objective standards, like your grade point average and all of that, or your experience and women who had these really high, you know, grade point averages, it actually, in a way, counted against them because they thought they just would not fit in in the same way. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Do you think that the antidote to something like this in the workforce is like the blinded auditions that symphony orchestras now do or like, is there a ver? do you think we'll arrive at a version where, and I know that some companies use asynchronous video interviewing now as a way to try to quell bias or blinding resumes, but do you think that, that it needs to sort of be turned over to machines in order to ferret out? human bias? Well, I mean, I think there's a role for technology in all of this, but I don't like that role. I, I feel like we're putting on technology the work that we need to be doing. And it's like Fair. another version of colorblindness, right? That, that, like the yeah. only way I can accept you is if I don't think about your race or if I don't think about your gender. But you think about those women who had the blind auditions and they join the orchestra, then they show up as women, right? And so how you know so so it's it's helping you get in the door but does it actually sort of change the dynamics once you're there does it change inequities in pay does it change promotions all that kind of thing so i hope that's not what we see as a solution to all of this because i i feel like we need more scrutiny on these issues mm-hmm. not less yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And I know that you're, you know, you're a researcher and you're you're telling us what is happening, right? But if you were charged to help drive change, like what do you think needs to happen first? Well, I think so the so the first is that I mean I think we need a holistic approach and oftentimes what we do first is say maybe, you know, at our workplace or even like police departments, for example, the first thing they do is just find someone to come in to deliver a bias training, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes, you know, this is what people want. They think bias is a problem. So if we have this training on this, it's going to really change things. But oftentimes those trainings aren't evaluated. And so we actually don't know how effective they are. And, right. and we shouldn't be sort of giving credit for just offering the training. It's, it's not the offering, it's the outcome, right, that that training is supposed to lead to. And if you if you don't have that, if it's not if it's not addressing or mitigating, you know, racial disparities in the workplace or, or you know, in policing or whatever, 
then um, you, you have to think about like, well, so why, why is it that we have it? And I feel like we're quick to sort of give credit for setting up like, like a process or sort of, you know, yeah. we're giving credit, you know, for offering the training, but not for actually dealing directly with the problem that led the, to the training in the first place. So, so when you say, um, you know, the first thing, I think sometimes people get stuck on what we do first, you know, they can check the box that they've done that. And then sometimes they feel even less inclined to do the harder things that they need to do to deal with these issues. And that's like looking at policies, looking at practices, looking at the culture. I mean, all of those things, those are heavier lifts for people. And when you give them, okay, we did the training and they get credit for that. Sometimes we don't get to the things that are really going to move the needle. So I feel like we need a holistic approach. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as you write, companies want to check the boxes, but not change the culture. Right. And I think we right. all want to do that because we want to manage the symptom and not deal with the root disease. And we want to not be uncomfortable anymore. But, right. you know, and in talking to my black friends in the fallout from BLM and they were they were just saying, you know, they're like, it is so traumatizing to be suddenly followed by tens of thousands of new people, et cetera, and for people to be taking pledges and promising to do better. And that's all well and good. But are those people going to be here in six months and in six years? Because this isn't sort of mea culpa. I'm sorry. I made a donation. This is ongoing, hard work. It's replumbing the system and it's redoing all of the policies, which requires stamina uh, and staying power. Stamina, it also requires that we reimagine, you know, <laughs> sort of who deserves to be in the C-suite, for example. I mean, I think yeah. oftentimes people think about racial bias, for example, or gender bias, like leading to the disparities that we see in the workplace and elsewhere. But sometimes those disparities can lead to bias. Like when you're living in a world where everywhere you go and every every corporation enter, when you look at the C-suite, it's all white men. That yeah. just, it sets up the expectation that that is who should be there, that that's the natural or normal thing. And it makes it like living in, in that situation or, or working in that situation where, you know, you know, that is the expectation. And, and so that's who those people, they, they look like this, right? They come from this one category. It, it just really affects, you know, how people, you know, you know, see people who are qualified, who could, you know, have those uh, positions or how they see the potential of people who are trying to get to that place. They just don't, they don't see them there, right? You know, they don't see their potential because they already know who typically lands those spots. So, so I think, um, I think we need to spend time, more time thinking about that. Like, I feel like oftentimes we think about bias as just being in the head of the person and either you're biased or not. But bias is produced by the situations we're in. It's produced by the environments that we, we immerse ourselves in. And so being confronted with like extreme racial disparities like that on a day-to-day basis actually influences who we see as a good leader, who we associate you know, with being on top, who, who we think about as superior. And so, yeah. so this is a, you know, a relationship that we have to think about in another way, too, like this, your environment sort of changing how your mind is functioning. Exactly. 
And then I think sort of thinking about the psychological part of it too, and sort of going back to schools, I thought this was so brilliant and also heartening and makes so much sense for every child. But it's the work of social psychologist Jeffrey Cohen that you write about, where they're testing the impact of the values values affirmation intervention. Right. And particularly for kids where you haven't been mentored in the same way or are facing struggles that, you know, privileged white kids don't face, that giving wise feedback. And I think that this holds, it holds for anyone, right? And it holds in work environments too. But that when you approach people and say, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations and I know that you can reach them, that the outcome is dramatically different in terms of motivation and grades. That's right. I mean, so they've done this actually at Stanford with college students, and they've also done this with middle school students. And no matter you know who the study participant is, they find that when they get the wise feedback that African-American students, Latinx students, right, they can trust that feedback, right? <laughs> they know that yeah. the feedback isn't being given because you know the person is biased or the person is racist, but the person is giving you this feedback because they believe in you. They see you. They see your potential, and that leads them to work harder. You know, on their essays and their assignments. Uh, it leads middle school st- students to work so hard that you, know, you see a difference in their grades at the end of the term. So it's encouraging, but it's also sad, right? That you don't have. It just means that <laughs> you don't have. That's not a given, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. you know, in that space, that you have to point it out because it's not a given that you, you're going in those situations as a as a student of color where you don't know who you can trust, you don't know if you can trust the institution, and it's just a, it's a difficult situation because we all need feedback to improve, right? We all need that feedback to grow and develop. But then if you can't trust that feedback because you're in an environment where, you know, you don't know if people have your best interest at heart, then then it's actually hard to achieve at the same level. And the same is true for the workplace environment, right? You know, when you don't get the feedback you need to develop and then you don't develop at the same rate and then people kind of look at you as that's confirmation of why people who look like you can't cut it. And so that's the right. that's the issue. I think also the, the thing that's troubling is why people don't give the feedback, especially in the workplace. But I think for, for teachers as well, and they're, they're not giving that feedback because they don't they're worried about being seen as biased. They're worried about being seen as racist. And they're more worried about that in some circumstances than they are that child getting the feedback that they need to improve, to develop, to grow. So how do we support teachers? How do we support these key essential workers in our systems to find the, not even the comfort, that's the wrong word, but like find the the temerity, the strength to lean into these situations? Yeah, 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 that's a great question, you know, and, and with this study, I mean, that was the cool thing is that if you... So you could imagine if if the teachers are worried about the, this, or if you know, sort of mentors or could could be or would be mentors in the in the workplace uh, situation are worried about this, then they should know that if they frame the feedback in the right way, 
they can give that feedback and it will be received and it would be appreciated and it would lead the person who you're giving that feedback to to trust you more and it would lead to better outcomes in terms of their performance. And so it's, it's not about should you give it or, or, or not and maybe you shouldn't give it because you need to you know, also sort of protect your own image. You know, it's about knowing how to give it, how to give it in a way where it's received well. And that study you know, shows people how to give that feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's something that, that anyone with any power in society can sort of bring forward, right? To the people right. on our, you know, if you lead a team... If you're a teacher, let's talk about healthcare and COVID and bias in the, and obviously there's bias against women as well as people of color. So what, and, and, and those communities are being much more impacted, right? Like it's, right. it's like four, particularly, I just saw a stat about Florida, but it's like 4X for Latinx and Three between three and four X for the black community in terms of being impacted. So what's your sense of what's going on? Again, I think a multitude of factors. And so, I mean, we've been talking a lot about bias. I, I think also there are racial disparities and who are essential workers. For example, we talked about that a little bit earlier. There are also disparities in terms of people's living conditions. There are disparities in terms of underlying health conditions, like it's a sort of compounding disparities basically that lead to now a disparity in, in, in COVID. But people are also looking more closely at the role of bias in this as well. And so it's possible that racial bias is playing a role in who who is offered testing, you know, when they when they go in, when they think that they might be sick, there could be bias in, in, in treatment, all of this. And so we don't have the data yet. So we don't know what's 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 going on. But it, I, I think those are, are places to start to look to see, you know, to, to see what's happening. And I think, you know, one of the, the responses to this is to is to have, you know, bias training for, for health workers. I mean, I think, you know, that was a bill that was, you know, passed in California, in the state of California, for example, that health workers should have this kind of training along with other people who are making life and death decisions, like people in law enforcement and so forth. But again, good idea in terms of wanting to uh, figure out ways to attack the problem, but you want to really make sure that you have trainings that actually are doing something and that you're there to evaluate those trainings to make them more effective if, if they're less effective than they could be. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And the thing is, too, you know, I think people are, many people are inherently self-interested, too. And so I think that this conversation, as it's emerged for some, is sort of like, well, I don't know what to do. And no, 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 no. And it's like, well, do you want to survive? Like, do you want our culture to survive and thrive? Do you want us to be competitive as a nation? Do you want your child to have an appropriately rich and diverse group of friends? Do you like what sort of future do you want too? because as you write, millennials make up almost 40 percent of the American workforce today and are on the verge of passing baby boomers as the nation's largest living generation. They are also the most diverse adult generation in American history. About one third are foreign born and almost half are non-white. So not only are they motivated, and I think Gen Z is remarkable, I think that Gen Z will save us all 
But the world is changing dramatically, which I know is terrifying to people who have held privilege and power right. for their whole lives. But this is not what the the world doesn't look like that anymore. At what point are white people not the majority in terms of numbers in America? Well, that's Soon, coming right, through, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, by 2050 or something like that. And already... Yeah. That's the case in California, where, where I sit. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people feel like diversity should be a motivator, that the fact that, you know, we're becoming more diverse as a nation should be a motivator for people to, to address these issues and deal with inequality and, and all of that. But for some people, you know, it, it actually is the opposite. It, it makes them feel threatened. It makes them fearful. Um, there's research by Maureen Craig and Jennifer Richardson, they're, again, social psychologists who have looked at this, where they do studies where they just remind people you know, that the world is changing and we're becoming more racially diverse. And just reminding people of that actually leads them to actually <laughs> exhibit more bias and to feel like white Americans in particular are under attack. And it actually it's producing the opposite effect from the effect that a lot of people believe it should. If you think about diversity as positive, then just prompting people to think about diversity will, will make them, you know, yeah, okay, you would have, you're on it, right? You're understanding the importance of this. You're understanding the importance of, of companies and, you know, schools and police departments and, and everyone building capacity for that, like building more diverse environments. But then if, if diversity is something that you see as negative and it's threatening, being reminded of that actually leads you in, in the completely the opposite direction. So that's what they're finding. What gives you hope? Like where, where do you, do you feel optimistic? Are you in terms of the, you know, the, the span of your career, do you feel like at least we're having these conversations culturally or are you despairing? Yeah, I feel optimistic in, in that way. I, I do. I feel like I don't remember a time where so many people have been focused on these issues. And even, I mean, we've been, you know, say 2014 was it was a time where a lot of people were focused on this with mm -hmm. the um, death of, of, of Michael Brown in Ferguson, right? And there were protests. Yep. But this, it, it feels different because a lot of the focus of the protest there, it was it was strictly on policing, you know, and it was, you know, changing you know, what was going on in policing. But this is broader than that. I mean, it's much broader than that. And you, you see, and many people have commented on this already, but, you know, you just see this multi-generational and you see, you know, people of all different sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds uh, focused on it. You see, you know, companies focused on it. It's interesting. A lot of people feel like the protests have, have died down now. And so there's a worry that maybe, you know, the moment is passing and that people have turned their you know attention maybe because COVID-19 is on the rise again. And so, you know, maybe maybe the, the window is already closing, but I don't see that. I, I feel like the protests were outside, but they're moving indoors. You know, the protests mm -hmm. are happening now in our workplaces and, you know, they're happening in our homes and in our school systems. And, and I, I see evidence of that every day, like just people in all these different spaces grappling this grappling with this and trying to figure out you know what do we do what actions can we take on this and I haven't I've never witnessed that before yeah so no it feels 
Yeah, it feels like the dial was set forward for sure in a way that's not it's not possible to slide back. And and I think that well, it's the, always uh, possible to slide back. <laughs> As we know, we've been sliding back for a little bit now. <laughs> but um, and, I, and I think that's a mistake. Always, we think like once you once you you yeah. know put the dial in the right direction, you you, you can breathe easy, or, or at least you could take a moment and feel like progress is been, being made. <laughs> We see how quickly it could be undone. Yeah. So no, you're yeah. right. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. And but I do think like, and this is perverse because I know that COVID nineteen is. I don't want it to continue and by any means. And yet, I also feel like we. It's already been so distressing and damaging, devastating. All of the adjectives that to just have things theoretically go back to normal, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is unacceptable. Right. It's like this has to have been worth something. It can't we can't we have to lock in change. We have to emerge with the plan. We have to and again, I know that again that goes to all of our desire to have a checklist and to have this be satisfying and to feel like we did it. And I yeah. get exactly what you're saying that that we're never done. But yeah. I really I think we all hope that we're not out of the penalty box until we have a plan and a way of ensuring real change. And I don't know how that will happen, but I'm just, I'm praying that it does. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that you need attention on it, you know, before you can see real change and then we need, you know, a path forward. We need to understand, you know, what to do, you know, what, what actions uh, should be taking, should we be taking and, and I feel like, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, you know, there are people who have, you know, lots of ideas, right, about how we can move forward. I don't know. I'm hopeful. You know, I'm, I'm also, I, I've been talking to you a lot as a scientist and a writer and a professor and all of that, but I'm also a Black mother. And mm-hmm. um, I just have to say, I just wanted to talk about that for a moment. Witnessing my sons move from being seen as children, you know, to being treated as the objects of fear has been really Mm. difficult. My oldest son was just 16 years old. He had already realized that when people looked at him, they felt fear. He would talk about elevators being the worst, right? And he said that because when the doors close, people are trapped, right? In this tiny space with someone that they have been taught to associate with danger. And so he used to try to, you know, talk to people and laugh with people and smile and all of that. And as a, as a mother, this was just really hard to hear because that whole time, I just thought he was an extrovert. I thought he was just like his dad and, you know, he's really sociable and so forth. But then come to find out that his behavior wasn't sort of being produced by extroverts. And it was really a survival skill, you know, that he had honed over mm. you know, all these elevator rides. And I don't know. And then I think about the irony of this, since we're talking about sort of, you know, history and, and all of that, and where do we go and where have we been and what does this moment mean? The, the irony of all that is that nearly a hundred years ago, we had the Tulsa race massacre in this country, right? It was one of the mm-hmm. largest race massacres in the history of the country. And that massacre started with a black teenager who entered an elevator and he accidentally 
stepped on the foot of a white woman. Mm. And that woman screamed and, you know, rumors spread that this teenager, this black teenager had sexually assaulted her. Mm. And so that led to all, I mean, that's what led to the massacre. Uh, The area known as Black Wall Street was destroyed. Over a thousand black homes were burned, you know, to the ground. There were thousands of, of black people who were placed under armed guard or they were chased out of the city. Right. So all of this with one misstep seems like a small thing. And but one misstep. Right. And so this is our history. And I feel like we're still struggling with that legacy. And we definitely need more awareness. We need to sort of learn to sort of check our bias in, in all these different forms as we've been talking about, because if we don't, we're going to be confronting the same problems and we're going to be confronting these problems for a long time to come. Yeah. And that's the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper, that was reflected there. You know, the white woman calling the police on the black man. I mean, that's Emmett Till. Yep. Who inspired, you know, Rosa Parks. That's right. And it's the tears of white women like me throughout history. Again, going back to our lack of education, it's just not taught, right? So even at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, a lot of my white female friends were moved, very stressed, moved to tears. It's like, no, you cannot cry. You can cry to me, but you can't cry to anyone else because of what the tears of white women mean in culture and the, the legacy of that for people like your son. And it will keep repeating until we break it. And, and I guess the only way to break it is through awareness and consciousness. Well, as a start, right, and and um, yeah. awareness and you know reflection, I think, and about what you can do and in the position that you're in, that what actions can you take, and taking those actions, and even when we're afraid of what's going to happen, I think it's necessary. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. I hope you'll get a copy of her book Biased. I think this one should be required reading. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.